Well, if a song like that doesn't get you longing and living for Christ's return, I don't know what will. What a beautiful song. Great praise. Good job singing out. Just love it. I want, to, want that tone and that focus, that theme to continue on. That's my desire for this time. Well, hey, look at the top of your paper. If you're taking notes, the tribulation, our title here, subtitle, The Dawn of the Day of the Lord. Doesn't that sound like a cool movie title? Kind of like, just like, whoa, epic, right? Yeah, I would want to watch it. I'd be like, what's that all about? Well, speaking of movies, because you brought it up, uh, I wonder if you can identify what the theme is or what is con- in, uh, these movies have in common. One, 2012. A frustrated rider struggles to keep his family alive when a series of global catastrophes threatens to annihilate mankind. War of Worlds. As Earth is invaded by alien tripod fighting machines, one family fights for survival. I feel like my voice should go deeper with each one. 28 days later, four weeks after a mysterious, incurable virus spreads throughout the UK, a handful of survivors try to find sanctuary. The day after tomorrow, I don't know if that day ever comes, uh, the day after tomorrow, Jack Hall, paleoclimato- oh, I had it earlier. paleoclimatologist, there we go, I think I got it, that must make a, a daring trek from Washington, D.C. to New York City to reach his son, trapped in the crosshairs of a sudden international storm which plunges the planet into a new ice age. The day the earth stood still, an alien visitor and his giant robot counterpart visit earth. Reign of fire. A brood of fire-breathing dragons emerges from the earth and begins setting everything ablaze, establishing dominance over the planet. Sunshine. That's kind of a funny one. <laughs> How'd that get in there? Sunshine? Um, sounds like a nickname for somebody. Uh, but uh, Sunshine, a team of international astronauts are sent on a dangerous mission to reignite the dying sun with a nuclear fission bomb in 2057. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, Miracle Mile, a young man hears a chance phone call telling him that a nuclear war has started and missiles will hit his city in 70 minutes. Wally. <laughs> Kids, Wally, anyone? Yeah, there you go. That, that's right. All right. Wally. In the distant future, I don't know, it seemed like tomorrow. Uh, in the distant future, a small waste collecting robot inadvertently embarks on a space journey that will, autom- uh, that will ultimately decide the fate of mankind. Now, I could have kept going on and on and on as you look through uh, not only movies and and plots of movies, but books, and plots of books, and series of books, and uh, things being issued and written. You look at our world, and our world is extremely fascinated with the end. Isn't that true? The end. It's so fascinating. It's almost built into every human mind that the end will come. The end of life, maybe even the end of earth, the end of humanity, but instead of wondering what it's going to be like or, or how it's going to happen, or even if it will happen, we can know for sure. You can know. So while the world throws out a lot of 
post-apocalyptic scenarios about what the end of days will be like. Let's cut through the confusion and bring clarity to what God says the end will be like. A little word to the wise, don't let the entertainment industry build your theology about the end or of any time, really, of life. Um, some of us are probably guilty of that because we're like, oh, that was such a good movie. Did you see that? He's like, that was so good, too. Did you see that? Oh, that was so good. And you like see so many movies, you end up thinking kind of like, wait, is that going to actually happen? <laughs> you know, and, and it starts to seep in. You kind of wonder, whoa, i got to exercise some discernment here. All right, so just a little word to the wise there. Well, hey, our objective this morning is, as we embark on our next part of this summer series that has been titled, Your Kingdom Come, we will find this morning that before the kingdom can come, and that golden age comes, there will be a very dark age, the darkest. There comes a day, a series of days called the Tribulation. My hope and prayer for us this morning is that we won't be deceived into knowing what is actually going to happen, but we'll have discernment from God's Word. Discernment from God's Word to know and to be able to see exactly what is going to happen ahead of us. Hopefully, with this knowledge, a clear knowledge of God's plan and His purpose for all creation and for you and for me, we can have transformed lives, right? Transformed lives. Not bigger brains with more information in them going, I know more. But transformed lives, individually and corporately. That you, individually, will love the Lord more and long for His return and live in light of it better. And as a church, we would get our act together knowing that we don't get to sit like this forever. Don't get comfy in these beautiful chairs that need to be stacked every week. You know, don't, don't, don't look at the things around you and go... It's just going to be here next week and next week and next week and next week. No, it won't. We have a mission as a church, and we need to be galvanized by truth to be about our mission as we meet here and as we go out into this world. Know this, that as we live, we set a motion picture for the world to see about the glory of the Lord who will come with both reward, as we saw last time, and wrath in His hands. So this morning I'm going to present seven main aspects of the tribulation period so that we can live and long for Christ's return as this day of the Lord dawns. Before we look at them, I want to orient you just uh, once again uh, with our slide, uh, the overview of end times. So it'll be up here, and you also have a printed version of this. And here is the big picture before we splash color on it and move through it. But we've been using this as kind of our home base. And you, know, you run around for a while, and you come back to this, right? So this is our home base, chart, timeline, what have you, visual. Um, we are in the church age. We're not over here yet. Uh, we're in the church age. We talked about the rapture and how Christians will be removed, all Christians of the church age will be removed to be with Christ, removed from the earth to be with Christ at the rapture. And then we saw that what happens once the church is raptured, well, there's this thing called the judgment seat of Christ, the, the Bema seat judgment. And so those are highlighted there in a beautiful lipstick color or something. Uh, marriage of the Lamb will be covered more in conjunction with the second coming, um, as we'll see. But that judgment seat of Christ is kind of like you've finished the race 
you, you, as a Christian, you've run hard after the Lord doing what He's called you to do. You've leaned forward with all your life and you go through that ribbon, breaking through, crossing that line, finishing your race, and then you head over to where you have your wreath put on your head. And what's pronounced over your life matters. You will be saved by the mercy of God. But you'll be rewarded depending on how you lived your life for Him. So it matters. So you kind of wonder, if that's what's happening with us, those who are truly saved in the air with God, what is happening on the earth at that time? If the church is removed, what happens in the earth? And that's what this tribulation period has to do with. Hades below is, is, a, is a term for where people go who are unbelievers and they die. So if you're an unbeliever, you die during the church age. You're an unbeliever, you die during tribulation, you go to Hades. That's why that's highlighted there. We'll talk about that more later. Uh, but this seven-year period of what is happening on the earth while the church has been removed is what we're talking about. About here, So I want to keep this in front of you, and, and where we'll go next is talk about this really glorious, epic, uh, actual return to the earth uh, of Christ, and that is next week. We'll just move piece by piece through this. So I hope this visual is helpful to the end that it helps you understand Scripture better. I found this helpful. First of all, let me talk with you about the phrases of the tribulation. The phrases of the tribulation. You, you, so, so you read your Bible, Right? You read, you read, you read, you come across certain passages, and you see the word tribulation come up. Or maybe you see other words that aren't tribulation come up, and you wonder, maybe this is this passage, this verse is talking about what well, we learned about this summer. That that's seven year period of, of trouble. Well, here's a, here's a good a verse for you, Matthew twenty four nine. Uh, you see this pop up and and not only twenty four nine, but you also have verse twenty nine. I'm going to cover these kind of quickly. If you want to turn to these, you can, but um, I'll read them for you for the sake of time. The word, the tribulation, Matthew 24, verse 9 says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Fast forward a little bit. What else does Jesus say in that same chapter, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days? So, the tribulation. It's not just a tribulation, it's the tribulation. So there's a fixed point, there's something uh, definitive, not um, kind of just, oh, it's just always kind of happening. There's actually a point in time. There's an event that is going to happen called the tribulation, and it doesn't look happy. A a basic definition of what the tribulation is would would be according to one guy named Paul Benware, uh, a great book called Understanding End Times Prophecy, I believe we've been recommending it in our um, bulletins, and we have it in our uh, in in our resource center. But uh, Paul Benner says this is the final seven-year period of time, the final seven-year period of time, when God will pour out judgment on unbelieving Gentiles and disobedient Israel. So it's about judgment, and it's about everyone, and it's about unbelief and disobedience. Note this, that when you see the word tribulation, it's not always referring to the tribulation. So as soon as you guys got that figured out, and you're kind of like, oh, great, now I have to use discernment. Yes, you do. You still have to look at each context and go, okay, what is this passage talking about? Is it talking about the tribulation? But hey, I'm not nervous that you can figure it out as you read your Bibles. You look at your context and figure out, oh, okay, this is one of those verses where he's not talking about specifically that seven-year period. 
For instance, Matthew 13, 21, when Jesus is talking about uh, the, the, the seed going out on the soils, and that's like someone speaking the good news of Jesus and it's landing on hearts, well, not everybody re- receives it the same way. Some people don't, don't take it and believe it. Actually, most people, it seems from that analogy, don't believe it. Matthew 13, 21 says uh, that this tribulation, like persecution, is what causes someone on account of the word to to defect or to not actually truly receive the good news. So, someone wants to be a follower of Christ, it's hard. They go, that's not for me. Because tribulations, hardship, persecution came. John 16, 33, Jesus says these words. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Always caring about the peace of his people. In the world you will have tribulation. That seems so broad, right? In the world you will have tribulation. It's kind of like saying, you live on the earth, you're going to experience it. All y'all, right? But he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is a general tribulation, a trouble that falls on all of us. A tribulation, you might say, with a lower T. We'll just call it that, right? Uh, Lowercase T tribulations are the kinds that we all experience day to day, maybe this morning, maybe because you can't be watching the game right now. You're experiencing tribulation for the sake of Christ. That's okay. The World Cup will go on. You can watch it later. Um, All right, so then there's this uppercase T, though, that we're talking about that is actually an event in Scripture that we're talking about here this morning. Then you see another phrase, great tribulation. You you think, well, maybe this is talking about the same thing. And it is, but it isn't. I like saying that. Uh, Matthew 24, 21 says, For then there will be great tribulation. Kind of talking about time. Then, at, at a certain point, after certain things happen, there will be great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Okay, what's the worst tribulation you've thought of? The flood, that's a big one. The plagues of Egypt, that's big. Sodom and Gomorrah, wow. Uh, The Holocaust, world wars, keep going. Anything that you think is like, wow, what has ever been bigger than that? The tribulation period will be. It will be. Unmistakably large. It won't even come close to what these other times of trial the earth has, has experienced. Revelation 7, 14 I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sometimes blood stains, but spiritually when you talk about the blood of Christ, he he purifies. He purifies people who are saved in the great tribulation. So people can be saved in this time, though it may cost them their lives. So the great tribulation, if you were to look at it in those verses, in those contexts, seems to be talking about not only the seven-year period, but more specifically, the second half of the seven-year period. We'll talk about that a little bit more as Jesus talks about it. So everyone knows what uh, half of seven is, right? Is three or four? No, three and a half. It's in between. All right, so three and a half years, okay, you, you've got the midpoint of a seven-year period, um, and that be, that becomes a, a significant turning point. You'll see that in a second here. I just want to prepare you for that. Uh, another phrase is uh, the day of the Lord. It's the one I've gone with in our title here, but usually in Scripture, this phrase, day of the Lord, it refers to the future tribulation period before the second coming. That's what we're talking about. 
You look at 2 Peter 3.10, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. You look at these different passages and you see the phrase, the day of the Lord. You think, well, isn't every day the Lord's? It is, right? I mean, what day is he not the Lord? Well, he has a special day. There's a day that's coming where everyone will go, whoa, that was the day of the Lord, right? You know, the earth will feel it. Uh, it, it is coming. It is so big. And movies just try and try and try to itch and scratch at what that might be like. And they still fall way short. But we still watch them anyway. It's a day of judgment and salvation. So not just one or the other, but it's a day of judgment and salvation. Cataclysmic wonders. Things that happen that if you were an astronaut and that was your shift to be up in the space center, you'd still feel it. You can't escape it. It's going to be so big. The day of the Lord is, is about divine vengeance. If you've ever been wronged, don't raise your hand. If you've ever been wronged, guess what? A day of the Lord is coming. And you've thought, oh man, if I could have my day with that person... You know, I, I go to I go go to town on them. You know, my reckoning would come. You don't want your vengeance. You want the Lord's. His is perfect, and that day is coming. That day is dawning. So, broadly speaking, the day of the Lord refers to the entire tribulation period, the second coming that we'll talk about next week, and then the week after that, the establishment of the kingdom. I mean, this is just this is it. This is the the big finale of all scripture of all time. This is the day of the Lord. He's coming to to clean house, to save his people, to come back to the earth, to set up his kingdom, and it's going to be beautiful. It has to be super dark before it can be super bright and beautiful. And that day is coming. It is dawning. At the same time, you see 1 Thessalonians 5, this day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. You can't see it coming. You can't check your watch and go, the day is almost here. The day is in countdown. Five, four, three. I'd be wrong. Whatever was it? Two, one. I mean, that'd be interesting if it was right now. Uh, it could have been. Uh, but you, you cannot calculate it. You cannot calculate it. The, the, the thief does not text you when you're in bed and your phone does not light up on your nightstand saying, I'm at the door with a bat. Okay, that's not what thieves do. They, they're sneaky. And they come in and they break in when you're not expecting it. Similarly, the day of the Lord will come when you're not expecting it. So we need to be prepared for this day of the Lord. The, the time of Jacob's trouble. This doesn't just apply to Jacob. Uh, this applies to um, all Okay, who will be alive at the time when this happens. But there is a time in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. It says, Alas, the day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress or trouble for Jacob. Talking about the people of God, the people of Israel. Yet he shall be saved out of it. Isn't that interesting? He shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke off of your neck, and I will burst your bonds. And foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, speaking of the son of David, Jesus, whom I will raise up for them. It's talking about the day of the Lord. It'll be a day of trouble. Unparalleled trouble. Another phrase for the tribulation is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is another common phrase for the tribulation period. 
You think about the wrath of God. Well, that's, that's one of his attributes, right? Has anybody done like a study of God's attributes and kind of went through them? And, and you learn about God being a God of wrath. And you go, whoa, you don't mess with him. You don't keep going on sinning thinking that you're going to get by fine. No, you start to like smell smoke from the last guy. And you're like, whoa, you know, God's wrath is serious. It's, it's eternal. He has a deep, passionate feeling against sin. That's his wrath. Little, large, one, every one of our sins. He has a wrath for because he hates sin. And it will lead to inevitable punishment. That's what this wrath of God is talking about. Looking at scripture, you see Revelation 6.16, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? You would rather be crushed by rocks and have your corpse hidden by boulders instead of face the wrath of God that is coming. You don't want this. And people will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks for help. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for His Son from heaven. That's us. Waiting for, our, for the Son of God from heaven. Whom He raised from the dead. We know who he's talking about. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you're saved, you've been delivered from the wrath of God because Jesus has taken God's wrath, the Father's wrath, at the cross for you. And there's a day of wrath that is coming. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't trust in Jesus, if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus, then the wrath that was poured out on the cross for sin was not applied to you. You still have wrath meant for you and your day is coming. That's what this is talking about. And so we praise God for the Son who has taken the wrath so that we don't have to look at the future and wonder and worry, will I encounter or experience the future coming wrath of God? If you are in Christ, He already took it for you. You're safe. Not so safe that you can live so casually and throw off what you thought you had. Maybe you were self-deceived. You thought, yeah, I'm saved just like all my friends. I'm saved just like my family. And then you come to find you were never truly saved. You were never truly saved. It's sad that we have to actually say truly saved, right? Saved should just mean you're saved. But now we have to say truly saved because there's so many people that say they're saved when they're not saved. And they're falsely saved. Sad. So not only do you have man's wrath, that's pretty bad. You have Satan's wrath, and that's, that's worse than what man can do to you. But nothing will compare to what God can do to you. I mean, you think, oh, I'm afraid of Satan. You should not be afraid of Satan. You should be afraid of God, the one who made you and can pull you right out. Right out of existence and into an eternity separate from him. The final phrase we see here is Daniel's 70th week. Daniel's 70th week. This one's kind of interesting. I want you to turn to Daniel just for a minute here. And so um, let me give you a little hint. If you're new to, um, to the Bible or to a Bible church, take your Bible, open it up to the middle. You might hit some, some poetry. 
Then start turning to the right. Use your right hand, start flipping. Uh, you'll be like Song of Solomon. Isaiah is a big book. You hit Jeremiah, that's a big book. Ezekiel's a big book. Start to slow down. And what do you have after Ezekiel? You have Daniel. Okay, so Daniel's kind of a littler book. I don't want you to miss it. Daniel, and then chapter 9. Find chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, is an interesting, interesting prophecy. Meaning that this was spoken in history long ago, some 400 and something years before Christ. But it has to do with what we're talking about, a future point. So we stand kind of like in between when it was given and when it will be fulfilled. So Daniel talks about some some kind of weeks, and, and this word weeks can be used, uh, it's basically the word sevens in Hebrew. So if you look at Daniel 9.24, it says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So you've got 70 sevens or, or seven periods of time. Uh, and so if you're taking 70 and you multiply it by, by seven, uh, you have, anybody know on the spot? 490, I heard it, 490. Okay, so you've got a big number, right? And so you have a, a, a period of, of years that this is, he's talking about a big chunk there. Uh, now if you were to keep reading, you start to see what he's talking about. He's decreeing something. This is coming from Gabriel, an angel, and he's telling Daniel, I'm going to give you understanding about when your people will be restored. When your people will have their kingdom come. Now I would love for Gabriel to show up and say, Kyle, you're done. I'm going to give everybody understanding. I'm like, yes, please do that. Because we need that. But he did this for Daniel. He gave him understanding. And, you know, frankly, when I read this passage, I wouldn't use the word understanding for myself when I first read it. I read it and I go, oh, there's a lot of misunderstanding going on up here. All right, so I'm just giving you a disclaimer. It's a difficult passage of Scripture. As I have drilled down into it, as I've meditated on it, as I've cross-referenced with other passages in Scripture, it's starting to become more clear. But this is where we get the duration of time for seven years for the period of trouble that's coming. And we know that he's talking about the future because he's saying in verse 24, for your holy city, talking about Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, he's talking about a, kind of a, a final point, a culmination, a, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. This is talking about the work of Christ at both his first and second coming. Fully at his second coming. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, what he's giving at this point in time, to the coming of an anointed one, we know him, in other words, Messiah, that's that means, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, so you're talking about 62 sevens, or seven years, so you're doing some math there on the spot. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Can you think of an anointed one, a Messiah, who was cut off? I can think of one. I could think of when. And he's talking about it a time period before the 70th week not all the way there and the people of and then he says the people of the prince who is to come so this is a different prince shall destroy the city and the sanctuary 
Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This is talking about a, a prince who is not the anointed one, not the Messiah, but one who is an anti-Messiah, an antichrist. That's who this prince is. He's not the anointed priest. He's another, sorry, not the anointed prince. He's an another prince. But desolations are decreed for this time when he is active, trying to stop God's plan to bring salvation to his people. Verse 27, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So if you were to take that week and make it, a, you know, it's a seven, remember, in Hebrew. So for one seven-year period, he's going to make a promise. Has everybody, anybody heard about like what the Antichrist is going to do? A lot, of, a lot of theories, again, as to who the Antichrist is. We all thought it was certain presidents in the past, right? Yeah, and so we're kind of like wondering, oh, maybe it still is, who knows. Um, but it's going to be someone who, at least here, according to this verse, verse 27, he's going to make a strong covenant, like a pact or a promise to bring peace for Israel for one week or a period of seven years. For one seven-year period. And look at this. And it says, For a half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And so you're like, okay, so at some point there he's going he's gonna to go back on it. He's like, seven years, peace for you. Strong covenant. Halfway through, he's going to say, no more sacrifice, no more offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator himself. So he won't have the final word, but he'll make it hard for the people that he said he was going to make it good for. So it's almost like you have an antichrist who's going to promise peace for Israel, and that kind of starts the seven-year period. Halfway through, he's going to defect. He's going to go against his word. That is so antichrist, isn't it? Christ is always true to his word. Here is antichrist going now against his word. And he's going to break that peace treaty. He's going to break that covenant. And there's going to be desolations. He's going to do something that's going to disrupt Israel who's trying to come to the temple to worship and to offer sacrifices in the future. That's interesting to me. All right, so you're still here in Daniel. I'm going to go to the next main point. Uh, The passages of the tribulation. The passages of the tribulation. There's three main texts, three key texts. They're right here for you. First of all, Daniel's prophetic vision. We just read it. There's Christ's Olivet Discourse coming up on it. John's prophetic vision. Uh, Another biggie right there. These are the three main ones. If you're trying to study the tribulation, figure out what's going on. Don't watch the movies and build your theology. Read these three. And then build your theology. And you've got to add some other verses in too as you study your Bibles. But this is where I would point you. and say You want to study this difficult period? of hardship that is coming very soon after the rapture, uh, study these passages. These are the big three. They give us nearly all the information on the tribulation period. This is where exposition gives us our theology. So we look at a passage, we start to like turn over the words, what do these mean? And then we go, well, it seems that this is going to happen after that. It seems that this guy is going to do that. It seems that we shouldn't put our hope in this. And guess what? We start to build a theology, which is a construction of thoughts and thinking about topics from the Bible. This is where you build your eschatology, your theology about the end times. And so time does not allow for us to dig deeper into this passage. I would love to do that. You have one thing that could be pointed out about how the prophecy that was given from that point when Gabriel talked to Daniel to the, to the fulfillment of that 69th week, so just, just one seven-year period shy, that's 483 years. It landed precisely on the date of Christ's 
triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? You're like, whoa, okay, this must just be like happenstance. That just before that last week that's talked about, Jesus is coming in to the date, riding in to Jerusalem, offering himself as the king to Israel. Do they receive him as king at his first coming? No. So we know that there is going to be something in between. We know there's almost kind of like a delay. We know that there's going to be some kind of detour. And we look at this and then we say, well, you know what? There, there must be some kind of gap in between the 69th week or that 69th seven-year period and then that final one seven-year period. And that's called the church age. That's where we're at. We sit in between. In between his first and his second coming. And so this is something that was maybe a mystery to some of the prophets. But, but we, here we are in the gap And that 70th week is coming. Uh, I want to turn now ahead, and more could be said about that, but uh, we'll reflect on it a little bit. Turn ahead to that next passage. This one's a a beauty right here. Or if you want to say it's a butte. This is a butte right here. Uh, Matthew 24. Please go there with me into the New Testament. Turn into the right. A few books. This is Jesus speaking, and it's called the Olivet Discourse because a discourse is just like a teaching time. Olivet, where did that come from? Well, you see the word olive in it, right? And so, so Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. The Mount of Olives is positioned like almost a stone's throw away from the temple in Jerusalem. It's like got one little tiny valley in between, and you're up on the Mount of Olives right there. And what's cool about it is that the Mount of Olives is just high enough for you to be able to look. If it's like like sea level would be would overshoot the temple, um, but if you're kind of looking down at a little bit of an angle, you can see into the Temple Mount where the Holy of Holies should be. It's not today, but there's the Temple Mount that's there from the original temple that was built, uh, built upon it every time it was destroyed in history, and so you can look over this beautiful, magnificent structure. The dwelling place of God with his people in the Old Testament was there. Was there. So, look at what's happening here. This is at a point, a little bit of background, a point in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is talking with the disciples. He's told them uh, that that, um, because Israel has rejected him as their king, he's going to bring desolations. He's going to bring destruction as, as, as punishment on his people for not taking him. That's in chapter 23. You see it right at the end of chapter 20, 23. Then Jesus leaves the temple because Israel as a nation has defected. And he was going away. His disciples were, were checking out the buildings as they walked away. You can almost kind of picture it, right? They're kind of like going down the Kidron Valley and then up and they're looking back like, aren't these beautiful buildings? You know, and, and, and so they reflect back on, on how beautiful they are, the temple. And he answered them, you see all this? And he responds and says, it's not going to be that way soon. All those stones that are so beautiful laid upon one upon the other, all the gold that lines the edge and the outside, all the gold that's inside, it will be destroyed. It will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. You read historians, this guy named Josephus, he said that even after it was destroyed in 70 AD, not long after this, that, that people were going through, turning over rocks to try to find where even the burnt gold had poured down into the cracks of the rocks that had been overturned. And they're trying to get the gold after it had dried and solidified again. 
I mean, this, this is a prophecy that Jesus gives that does come true. Now, as he's talking about this, this destruction that's going to come upon Israel, it causes the disciples to, to ask a question. And they say in verse 3, Matthew 24, verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. So it's a little, a little powwow, small group here, small group meeting. He's, they say, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. So now they associate the destruction that's coming in 70 AD with like what the Old Testament's talking about, when like he's going to come back and it's going to be the day of the Lord. So they associate it with that. They ask two questions. When... Isn't that what everybody wants to know? When's the Lord coming back? Jesus, when are you coming back? The second question they ask are, what are going to be the signs of the coming of, uh, of this age? Or, or, or the close of the age? So, tell us when, and tell us exactly what's going to happen right before the end. It's almost like, so we can be ready. Right? Uh, that's, what, that's what I read into their question. I'm curious about this. When we study end times, like, yeah, tell me when. Yeah, just tell me like, you know, when I need to get serious. And so they kind of have that, that thought a little bit. Jesus answers them, and starts to explain, give them an answer to their second question, but not the first one. The first one, he actually says, no one knows the time. Uh, the second question, he says, I'll give you the signs. I'll tell you the signs that are going to happen before I come back. So you can know. So you can be ready. So you look uh, further as you keep reading in Matthew 24. And you see that uh, probably you know from verse 5... Uh, to about verse 8. He's talking about the first half of that tribulation period, describing it as wars, rumors of wars, uh, antichrist, people saying lies, saying that they are the Christ, uh, nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines on the earth, earthquakes in various places. And he says, this is just the beginning. And sometimes we say, oh man, all those things we see. Yeah, but we don't see it to the degree that it will be in that day. So let me just say that. We're not in the beginning of the tribulation just because we see some of these things take place. No, we're not there because these things are going to take place in such a way that there's, there's never been a time like this where the whole world is wondering, what is happening to the world? It's like, it's like going through birthing pains or something. Uh, and that is what he says in verse 8. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then he shifts and he's talking about the second half of the seven year period. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall, betray one another, hate one another. Lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel will go out to all nations then the end will come. Verse 14. Then the end will come. So that question that everybody's got burning ears and a mind for, yeah, but when is the end? When is the, what is the end of days? These things will happen first. Then the end will come. And he talks about in verse 15, that midpoint of the tribulation. When you see the abomination of desolation, you're like, hey, that's like something that the Antichrist is going to do. Daniel taught us that. Spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place... Okay, so he's going to do something that desecrates the temple. He's going to do something that's an abomination in the holy place that he said that they could have for a while. He's going to set himself up as God. It's going to be really interesting that he does this because this is just an open declaration of, of war against God and turning the hearts of the people and their attention away from him. 
Now, if you were to keep reading down to verse uh, 26, you see it describes the second half of the tribulation in even more detail. After the great tribulation, that second half of the, of the tribulation period, you see something happen. He actually gives a sign of his coming. So everybody look at Matthew 24, 29. I love this stuff. This, this is so cool. You can't make this stuff up. Jesus is telling us that this is going to happen. Listen, Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, those days, those future days, tribulation is coming, the sun will be darkened. We need a a nuclear bomb or or whatever to help (laughs) strengthen it, right? Sunshine movie. Uh, The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign. You want to know the sign of the coming of the Lord? He's like, here, I'll tell you the sign. The sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's almost kind of like, wait, how could anybody describe what all these things are happening to the earth? Why, why are there all these you know, crazy things happening to, to the sea turning red? You'll see later in Revelation. Or all these wars on these levels that, you know, it's almost like everybody's just wishing that the rocks would fall in and they'd just die. And, and, and the whole world is seizing and... And wondering, and then he comes for all the world to see Jesus coming back to his earth in power and glory. And everybody will know and associate and go, this was the day of the Lord. This is the great day of the Lord. Verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is a point that is going to be at the second coming, so I don't want to take too much of Chris's content for the next time. All right, so finally you have John's prophetic vision, and you have this in chapters 6 to 19. All I want you to do is turn with me to Revelation 6. I'm not going to read all those chapters, uh, but just Revelation 6, and just get, get your Bible open to that. Just open it up there, and I have a little chart, change up the pace a little bit, kind of help you visually see some things. Now, you're going to see this next slide, I think. It's coming. And next one. Here it is. Okay, so overview of the events of Revelation. Now, I've even printed this up for some of you if you want to grab this so you can have this. Um, I think that uh, the pieces of the tribulation here uh, come together. Um, and if you were just to take the book of Revelation... You go, man, that's a whopper. Actually, a lot of people have said, oh, this summer you're going to do a book study on the book of Revelation. It's funny that they said that because, you know, it indicates that some people have an understanding that if you're going to talk about end times, you're just going to be teaching on the book of Revelation. Well, in large part, yes, because check out this this graphic if you can follow with it. Okay, so the pretty green here is what's happening on the earth, events on the earth, church age, tribulation, millennial, uh, millennium and eternity. All right, the eternal state. Now, in heaven, events in heaven, there's a vision of the glorified Christ, the heavenly throne room, and the return of Christ. The return of Christ. Now, the white things are the chapters of the book. 
and the lines and arrows showing you kind of like what's going where. All right, so put some of these pieces together. You open the book up and you start reading about this vision that John has of Christ who's been glorified. That's what's happening. So that's like a heavenly vision of of Christ. Christ is bringing the message of revelation. He's the one who wants to to do the revealing. Then chapters 2 to 3 is is a message to the current churches that are on the earth at that time. So I have good things to say about you and I have bad things to say about you. You've got to get these things in order. He talks about the church of Thyatira, the church of uh, Pegasus. No, I don't think it's Pegasus, is it? Laodicea, Pergamum. <laughs> All right, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Sardis. He's talking to Ephesus. Um, it's, it's very clear. He's talking to the church. Then you have this piece in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says this. Chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I know I flipped back three chapters. But he says in Revelation 3.10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now this could be a rapture passage. I'm not going to say it first certainly is. But if it says what I think it's saying, the church is removed before the hour of trial is coming on the whole world. I mean, when I read this, I'm thinking, he's talking to people who are in the church, saying he's going to keep us safe, almost like the plane's going down, he's going to hit our eject button, hold us safe before it crashes. Um, So this hour of trial is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So you look at it and you go, okay, well, that'd be the end of chapter 3. You see this, this, chapters 4 and 5, is another picture of what's going on around the throne. Worship being given to Christ, who is at the throne, his father, who sits on the throne. And then you see chapter 6 to 19. This is the biggest part of this graph, and it includes the tribulation events. Let me just point something out. I'm actually saying a lot of the things in the next point, so don't worry. Um, so the next points will go really fast, actually. Um, but, but chapters 6 to 19 talk about the judgment that is going to come and the tribulation on the earth. And guess what? The word church isn't used anymore. So it's almost as if John is getting a vision of of what's going to happen in the future. And the first thing he has to do is give these letters to the church. And then after he says, I'm going to remove you from this hour of trial, then he describes all the things that are going to happen on the earth without talking about the church. It's like, wait, wait, you used the church, the word church a lot, and now you, now you haven't used it once for the rest of the book. Well, that's because I think the church has been removed, and God is going to resume his plan with Israel during the tribulation. So from chapters 6 to 19, you have the tribulation uh, events taking place. You have the return of Christ, which culminates and ends the tribulation. And when he ends the tribulation... He doesn't keep tribulation happening. He doesn't let the Antichrist run around and play. He says, no, you go to the pit. You're chained at the bottom of that bottomless pit. And you're not allowed out for this thousand year reign on the earth where Jesus is going to reign as king over Israel, his people, and with us who have joined in as well because of God's goodness and his plan. So the book of Revelation, absolutely beautiful. A little confusing if you start to flip things around and start to read things the wrong way. You're like, wait a minute. I would just say, read the book of Revelation and look at it kind of chronologically. Piece after piece after piece. And you're going to learn a lot about what God's plan is for the end. The whole revelation and revealing of the end.
Do we have another slide in here? Yeah. So let's uh, let's build this out a little bit, looking at the pieces of the tribulation. So we're, we're putting together some pieces. We've looked at all the main passages. Um, uh, we've kind of just in part summarized uh, the book of Revelation, but now uh, looking at it in a chart like this. So you have the rapture of the church. Whoop, all right. So um, those of you who are truly saved going to be with him. Then, then there's the beginning of birth pains, as we remember in Matthew, Jesus called it that. These are the beginning. There's a halfway point by the dot, 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 dot line. And then there's the great tribulation, the second half of it. At the end of it will be the second coming. So everyone gets a little bit of a layout of what's happening here for the seven-year period. And then there's another aspect of this that starts to happen in Revelation. Now, Revelation 6. Look at those opening words. I know you're looking at the board right now, but that's fine. Uh, It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. What you're going to see through the next uh, chapter, or that the rest of that chapter, uh, and, and on, is you're going to see what's called the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And guess what? There's seven of each. And they kind of come rhythmically, one after the other. It seems that the seal judgments are grouped in that first half of the tribulation. And it seems, if you were to keep reading it, that the trumpet judgments are in the second half. And then the bold judgments, I mean, it's like, it's all happening just like, (laughs) as if the Lord's like really coming. I mean, we talked about that analogy before, when a woman gives birth, when that baby's due. I mean, it's time. Everything is, all systems go. That's what you're seeing at the end when the kingdom comes, when Christ returns. So it's a great analogy, but just to think about the seals, these are like, you know, kind of picture the title deed to the earth as a scroll. Someone owns it. That's Jesus. He's the lamb. He is the only one who has the power to be able to break these seals. It's like kind of like wax when you pour it on, when, uh, when a scroll is rolled together, and you put a little, like you have a little ring that has like, you know, KJ for me, Kyle Jennison, right? And then I, boom, stamp it. It dries. Got my seal on it. There's seven seals on this scroll. What you're going to see here is these seal judgments is kind of like busting the seal open, busting the seal open, busting the seal open, and more and more judgment is coming upon the earth. He sends not just angels' wrath or man's wrath, but look at verse 1 again, chapter 6, verse 1. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And, and so this is, this is God's wrath. He's pouring out His judgment. He hasn't set it aside for someone else. He, this is alone for him to do. And so you see after the seventh seal is, is finished, or as it wraps up, it, it, it then turns into these trumpets, these trumpet blasts. Or whatever a cool trumpet sounds like, right? You know, and then you have these seven trumpets. And as each one announces, something else of, of epic proportion is going to happen on the earth. Um, they're like the plagues of the Old Testament. But they're massive in scale, and they, and they reach sea to sea, and they, and they touch all over the land. It's, a, it's as if comets are just being bolted down from heaven and striking the earth in different places. And people, There's famine all over the place, pestilence. There's like demon locusts. I mean, it just gets crazy. And you're like, whoa, nothing has ever been like this before. I saw a movie that got close. You know, but this nothing ever been like this before. This is the great tribulation. The bowl judgments, I mean, picture, you know, this big broad bowl like this that you would have, you know, some water in, you know, after, after the, 
um, you know, the, the sacrifice was, was finished. They want to kind of dump the water out and kind of whoosh, you know, put it out. And you have this judgment in a bowl. And it's like at the very end, it's like each bowl is just being dumped out and just doused on the earth. And it's just whoosh, whoosh, all these things that are happening. You can read in greater depth. I would love for you to, to pick through and read through um, and put these pieces together. I think there's only one other thing to, to point out about this, to, to fill this out for now. As I mentioned earlier, the, the Antichrist rises at the beginning of this time. He becomes active. Now, if the church is raptured today, and that's going to happen soon, it could be someone in political power now. So, that's possible. I don't think we'll quite know who he is until that beginning time. That will start the seven-year period at the middle of the tribulation period. He'll break his promise that he made with Israel. And he will go in, in the temple. He'll set himself up as God. He'll have people worship him and worship Satan instead of God in his house. That was not a good move. Okay, So then that was breaking the treaty. Then it gets increasingly difficult for Israel to be saved and to live with God and for God. And that is what ends at the end there, the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. That is when Jesus comes back. Let me just say this. We call it the battle of Armageddon. It appears to be described as a battle, but let me suggest another word for it. It's the execution of Armageddon. When Jesus comes back, he is not pulling out his best weapons and and trying his hardest and then regrouping and getting more troops and running at them again and trying to beat back Satan. He comes and he speaks a word. The enemy is brought low. It is no problem for him. He speaks a word and he wins the biggest battle that is ever known to man. All the nations following Satan, following the Antichrist against him, and he comes and he speaks victory. It's almost as if he could take nothing and, and, then, and then turn it into something just with his words. And he did do that at creation, right? Let me give to you now what might, might be the most helpful point, and I think that uh, this has helped me a lot. Go to that next point is the purpose of the tribulation. Here, let me give you these three purposes of the tribulation. You've been hearing me say this, and hopefully you can kind of see now that we're building our theology from the Bible, not from movies, not from man's ideas. But as this day of the Lord comes into view, one of the primary purposes of this seven-year period is to judge unbelief. Jesus does not mess around with unbelief, yet we do, don't we? You might be that person. You might know that person who has put off Jesus. They have put off deciding to follow Christ. They're not sure or they're trying other things. Unbelief is dangerous. It needs to die or else it will be led to this point of God's wrath. So the tribulation is about judgment for an unbelieving world. As Revelation 3.10 said, it's the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. What you have happen is you take all the believers on the earth in the church, you remove them in the rapture. Then what do you have on the earth? All unbelievers. So how does God feel about unbelief? It's almost like he needs to let them know what he thinks about unbelief. 
And so the tribulation is exactly that. Why the bowl judgments? Why the trumpet judgments? Why the seal judgments? Because he can't tolerate sin. He can't handle when people know full well what Jesus has done for them and then not repent and stay in their sin and continue to do their own thing in life. He won't tolerate it. Neither should we. This is the first purpose of the tribulation, to test the unbelieving world. So every living creature will be held responsible to the Creator for resisting Him. The second purpose is the preparation for a believing Israel. As I've already pointed out and alluded to even, and as you continue to read the Bible and see, it just is so clear that God has a future plan for Israel. He's, he's not done with them. Though they were done with Him, He is not done with them. There are some beautiful verses tucked in the Psalms and the Old Testament and, and in other points where God has made it very clear that He is not done with His people. Daniel 12, verse 1 says this, Daniel 12, 1, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, there it is, time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. So we're like, he's talking about the tribulation period. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. So it's like, okay, at that future time, when it's the most intense, excruciating pain this earth has ever gone through, the people of Israel will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Ezekiel 20, verse 37 says, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. To pass under the rod is to come under his judgment in such a way that God, that fathers or mothers take disobedient children under the whacker or whatever you call it in your house uh, the belt uh, the you know if if there is some uh, choice tool of using that to to you know exercise discipline in your home well this is what he's doing with Israel whooping their hineys he's really trying to get their attention so they can learn their lesson and we go, whoa, suddenly this becomes so relatable. Suddenly this becomes so like, like, what? okay, so, so when I'm a parent and I spank my daughter because I love her and she has done something disobedient, I'm not telling her, and after I spank you, you are not welcome ever again in this house. Get out of here right now, you eight-year-old. You know, I, I'm not saying that. No, I'm not saying you've lost your last name, you know, you know all these things. No, I, I love her. So the discipline that she sees, that she faces... It hurts for a moment. And that's what's happening during the tribulation. Israel is being prepared to receive him. Their will, their stubborn will, their blindness, it will be broken, it will be shown. And when Jesus comes back, they'll see him. Listen to this. Zechariah 12, 8. Zechariah 12, 8, 9, and 10. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, strong, like a king. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. He's going to pour out a spirit of grace 
on his people and pleas for mercy, grace and mercy for his people. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, do you guys see what he's saying here? They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus is going, to, uh, is going to pour out wrath on his people so they could see what they had done to him at his first coming. And they pierced him with nails to the cross, had him die and hang in humiliation. But the second time he comes, when he comes back, they'll look upon the one whom they have pierced and they'll be broken inside. They'll be crushed in their spirit. And they'll realize what they have done. And they'll need him. And they'll want him. Though they'll feel terrible for their sin. Blessed are those who who mourn. Because that's what Israel one day will do. And they'll receive him as their king. Purpose three is more of a byproduct or an effect of God's intentions in the tribulation, there's a countless number of Gentiles that are going to be saved as well. And you might think for a moment, and some people have asked me this before, okay, time out, a lot of people being saved in the tribulation, how? The rapture removed the entire church. We're the people that are supposed to proclaim the message. So you took all the proclaimers away. How's anybody going to be saved? You're telling me there's multitudes of people that are going to be saved? There's some 144,000 of these Jews you're telling me about. You're you're telling me there's this countless number of Gentiles that are going to be saved during this time of of reckoning and and destruction and discipline. Yes, I am telling you that. There are a couple of different ways this can happen. There there are the two witnesses. You've probably heard that term before. I don't have time to talk about these two witnesses that God will use during the tribulation. They're like prophets for him. 144 Jewish believers angels will be soaring through and proclaiming a message of repentance. And even the appearance of Christ at the end of the tribulation could be used. But think about this very practically. Who have you shared the gospel with in your lifetime? Think of somebody that you have shared the gospel with, the good news of Jesus. Now, let's say rapture happens. Their friend, you, is gone. They start to think about the things that you told them. Do you think that they could be saved at that point, realizing, oh boy, I was wrong, and, and now, and now i got to figure out how I need to get right with God. So-and-so told me about him. So-and-so is gone now. This is a motivation for you to be faithful in sharing your faith. Go, share the gospel There are people who one day, if the Lord should bring it today, the rapture happened today, how are they going to be saved? It could be because of the seed you sowed and it landed on hearts that doesn't shoot up until after the rapture. That's so interesting for me to think about. We should be encouraged and and stimulated to, to reach them. So this is the third great purpose of what God is doing in this time, to bring many to himself, not just judgment, but salvation at the day of the Lord. Finally, let me go quickly over this. The people of the tribulation. The people of the tribulation. You have the Antichrist. We've talked about him. We have the false prophet. He's like his sidekick, basically. Think spiritual sidekick. 
right, so he's going to do these, these miracles and these different things. You're like, whoa, wow, this guy, Antichrist, must be the real deal because, look, he's got this guy who's doing all these things for him. The 144,000, you could read in, in Revelation 7, also 14, talking about the Jewish people, 12,000 from 12 tribes. The two witnesses you could read about in chapter 11 of Revelation. So some of those key characters we have talked about already, you could dig more into later. Um, here is the positions of the tribulation. The positions of the tribulation. I just kind of summarized three basic views in layman's terms as to uh, the, the different way of looking at the tribulation. The tribulation already happened in 70 AD, whether partially or completely. Some people hold to this view. Some people call themselves preterists. That just means like past people or something. The preterist view is wanting, I think, because the signs of the end of the age are so closely associated with the second coming. And Jesus has not come back yet. So to say that the tribulation has already happened, I'm, I'm, I'm asking them, when did the second coming happen then? Because Jesus put those right next to each other. He said, these are the things that are going to happen right before I come back. So if you're a preterist, I would say, when did Jesus come back? I, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't see that. I don't see that in the scriptures. Second, though, the tribulation has been going on since the beginning of the church. Again, this is that view that spiritualizes scripture more than takes it literally. And I think that a literal reading of your Bibles would leave room and actually you could defend well that there is a seven-year period of tribulation. Not just, oh, well, we all experience tribulation. That's what the church has to go through. And so we've been doing that for 2,000 years. Now, and I also think it downplays the significance of that time that is coming as well. Then that third view, the tribulation is a future seven-year period before Christ's return. This is the futurist view. The futurist position is, I think, preferred because it most consistently holds up with the prophecy from God's word. Let me just end by talking about the practicality of the tribulation. And you might be thinking, okay, we're talking about the tribulation. This is a message that doesn't apply to me because I won't be here. Anybody thought that yet this morning? Anybody think that when they saw it at the top of their page? The tribulation. Oh, well, that's going to be for somebody else because I'm going to be up with the Lord. Well, you need to ask, ask some questions and consider um, some, some practical sides of this. These are just thoughts that I've had after studying theology and thinking about the, the tribulation. The wrath of God is coming on unbelief. Are you truly saved? Start there, right? If, if you know that God's wrath is coming and it's right to come on sin, you have to think through that and go, have I truly given my life to Christ? Or am I wavering still? If you're wavering, or if you're just holding him off, if you found other things more important, more intriguing, more satisfying than Christ, then you have the crosshairs of God's wrath on your life still. And he's about to pull that trigger. Second, the wrath of God is coming. Are those around you saved? You tell me you don't have compassion for the people around you? I tell you, you're not saved, buddy. We need to have a growing heart that thinks about eternity with those people in our lives. And I'm guilty of this because I've watched so many days go by where I've tried to pray like Ken has challenged us to pray each morning. Who today, maybe, can I share with? And I've watched days go by where I'm like, oh, man, I missed opportunities. And I didn't even think about it that one day, probably. Didn't even have the thought. We need to be sharp here, knowing that God's wrath is coming. Third, be forewarned if you are holding Christ 
I think I should say off. Okay, off now. It will not be in, any easier to receive him after the rapture. You say, oh, well, hey, when the rapture happens, that'll be a clear sign for me to get my life right with God. Then, yeah, I'll be saved. Okay, if you're holding him off now, it won't be any easier then. So don't put your eggs in that basket. Those are already broken. Yes, you can be saved, but if you're holding him off, that's a kind of blindness that is dangerous. Fourth, if you are truly saved, take comfort that the tribulation you face now tribulations you face now are from God's love and not God's wrath. The tribulations you experience in your life are to shape you and mold you more like Christ. And He loves you. So He's spanking you. He's disciplining you for your good that you might share in His holiness. The tribulation that is coming that day will be His wrath. It will be His punishment. And you can't escape that. So just know that this is about, yes, the future tribulation, but this is about the gospel this morning. There is one way out. One way to avoid God's wrath and to know his love. And that's by transferring your trust from yourself and your righteousness to Christ. That's where you need to be. He's your Savior. Tribulation is coming. But He's our rescuer. And so He'll return soon for us before this great day dawns. Let me pray. Father God, thank You for this morning. We give You our lives. We give You our words. We give You our hearts. We give You study. We've given You this study and we pray that as we have given ourselves to this study, Lord, that we would be transformed by it. We would think about the gospel. We would think about how Christ is the one and only way to be rescued and redeemed and preserved and protected from your coming wrath. Thank you. Thank you for giving us Christ. We love him and we want to spread the good news of him so that until the last day, men will know And we'll know who is in charge. It's our great King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. Amen.